Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 176, being recorded on Monday, June 3rd, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. One of our favorite topics here on the Jason Scott Show is direct-to-consumer brands or digitally native vertical brands. Choose your poison on that. Uh, and today, we're really excited to have one of the OGs, uh, JT Marino. He is co-founder Tough & Needle, Chief Strategy Officer at Serta Simmons Betting. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We are excited uh, that you're able to join us tonight, JT. Uh, one of the things we always like to start off is give our listeners uh, a little bit of a, a bio background on yourself. Can you talk to us about uh, how you came to start uh, Tough & Needle? Sure. Um, so background, let's see. So um, I studied computer science and mathematics at Penn State. Um, and that's also where I met my co-founder um, at Tufton Needle, Dehi Park. We're best friends. Uh, from there, um, I had to help several startups build their engineering and design teams, product teams. Um, and uh, one of those startups, um, Dehi actually ended up joining and we decided that we wanted to branch off and the time was right. We wanted to start something of our own, uh, but we wanted to do something very different. Um, we wanted to start with, uh, instead of trying, you know, trying to come up with an idea, this for that, or it's like this company for this. Um, we, we really wanted to start with a problem that we knew um, needed to be solved. Uh, that was a big problem. And what better way than to start with something that you've, experienced yourselves. Um, and so the, the idea we, you know, the problem we settled on was shopping for a mattress. Um, so I, I had, you know, after college, um, had gone shopping for a mattress, which was suffice it to say worse than shopping for uh, a used car. And, uh, I spent a lot of money, didn't like it, tried to return it, couldn't return it. And so literally every night was reminded of this big mistake I'd made. And so that was one of the items on our, one of the ideas for, for problems to solve. And in, in a way it was eccentric on the list because it wasn't software related, which was our, our primarily our background. Um, so what we decided to do, um, you know, instead of uh, coming up with the idea, finding some co-founders, building a pitch deck, pinching VCs, securing some money, building your team, building your product, and a year, a year and a half later, launching it to find out if it works or not. We wanted to rapidly test it and see if we can find product market fit, um, ideally within a week. So we knew if it would have legs or not and whether we should move on to something else. So what we did was we built a single uh, a single page website. And, um, and I actually should say, the way that we approached the value proposition in formulating sort of the business model was uh, it started with what we call the hate list. We took a legal pad. We wrote the hate list at the top. We wrote down everything we hated about shopping for a mattress and everything we hated about mattresses. So as an example, walking into a mattress store and having all of these different options to choose from another commission salespeople who are like really pushy and use all their sales tactics. Also not, not a lot of fun. 
um, having to schedule delivery, take a day off work to receive it, and, and so on. Return process. I mean, just there's so many. There was so many things on this list that literally filled the page. We drew a line down the center and just what we would do instead. Instead of all these options, one one mattress. Instead of a commission salesperson, no commission salesperson. Instead of having to go in the store, we'll start online. Um, instead of having scheduled delivery, we ship it via FedEx if possible. So things like that. So we we reduced the the feature list to the minimum we thought would <clears throat> it would take to convince somebody to buy from a company they didn't they had never heard of, and then just converted that into sales material um, on a website. We took a photo stock image of a mattress, um, put put that up there, and a credit card form at the bottom. And the credit card form that wasn't fully wired up, but it would send a signal if somebody attempted to buy. We launched the site. We took out a Google ad, and 15 minutes later, there was somebody just jamming on the on the process button. So we knew that we, if we could within 15 minutes have somebody already trying to buy, then there was definitely something here. So that's when we shut the site down. That was June of 2012. Over the summer, um, you know, we we figured out how do you make a mattress, who makes them, what the supply chain was, and then, and then in October. We launched Tuck the Needle with our first product um, online. So that was October 2012. Um, without venture capital, it was fully bootstrapped. We essentially had four months of uh, runway with our savings um, to, to survive before we had to either get a job or, or start paying ourselves, which we were su- successful in doing with about three months uh, post-launch. That's awesome. Did that first um, test customer ever get a mattress? As far as you know, <laughs> to be honest, we we um, we we lost that customer. We didn't have their contact information. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I really appreciate them. So who knows? Maybe after that, maybe somebody wouldn't have. You know, if somebody didn't attempt it within the first day, we might have abandoned the whole thing. But I'm glad. I'm glad whoever it was uh, took a chance. Yeah. That. Uh, so that's an awesome origin story. Um, I'm curious. A ton of the the digital native companies we talk about on the show um, come out of this factory at Warden um, and you were across town. Like, is there a Penn state Warden rivalry for, for digital native brands or not really? Um, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. You, have, you guys don't have a softball league or anything. Um, there very well could be. I will, well, there, there's, um, there, there is a pretty strong um, network of very successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley from Penn state. So I'm, you know, it's nothing like Stanford or Harvard, but um we we um, we definitely have a um, a good a good group going. Weebly and um, you know a few few others were some of the early um, entrants into Y Combinator in the first um, the first uh, course. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, that 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 part of the the country has been such a fertile hotbed for for entrepreneurs, um, especially back in 2012. You took a pretty untraditional path in not raising outside money. Um, we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, that that you were ultimately part of an acquisition, but um, if you can say like, were you able to to then grow organically, and did you ever have to raise any money before the acquisition? Yeah, we 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 grew. So we started with six thousand dollars, and we grew that. Um, sort of an anomaly. So we grew like a fast paced startup with a hockey stick, all the way up into the point of a merger, um, and we merged with Serta Simmons, the largest mattress company in the world last um last october and it wasn't something that we had to do Um, we actually decided to do it because we strongly believed it would be the fastest path to completing the mission of the company our mission was to not only disrupt the industry or catalyze the disruption which we did 
um, but it was also to shift the industry to being focused and prioritizing its customers. Um, and so we, we felt that this was, was a way to do that. But between 2012 and, and 2018, we had raised zero capital. Um, the first three years, we didn't have enough um, profit to actually have much of a marketing budget at all. So we heavily relied on um, an iterative process of using customer feedback and iterating on the product, the service, the value prop, all of those things to be best in class, which then turned into um, a very strong organic growth. Um, our net promoter score is the highest in the industry of um, north of 75 uh, MPS. And we really relied on our customers to spread the word um, until we, we had enough profit to actually start fueling, um, fueling additional growth. That is um, both rare and awesome. I'm curious, I, I presume you get asked uh, for advice from other entrepreneurs. Is is that a path you would encourage other people to follow? Because I feel like there still is a lot of indoctrination and brainwashing in the VC community that they're the, the path to entrepreneurship. Well, it really depends on what path you, I mean, what you want as your outcome. Um, we, our goal was to disrupt something big, but we also had a minimum. Our goal as a minimum was to build a company. If, it, if we couldn't really grow it as big and, and cause the kind of change in an industry that we, we wanted to, we were okay to settle with a lifestyle business that could pay us the salaries we were making at the previous company. And then we would just build something else. So, um, but one of the, the nice things about it, so we've, we had a bad taste in our mouth with the, pre, with the previous company that we, we had worked for. And I've seen this a number of times how venture capital money can be, um, can be toxic to the decisions you make. When you prioritize growth over everything, a lot of times you forget about the customer, the very customer you're serving, or it sustains a shitty product that um, never really should exist. And you don't really need to um, sprint to solve it because you've got this money floating you. So, um, you know, or, or, or just burning cash and buying your customer rather than earning them and having them reward you with their dollars um, rather than buying buying those customers, convincing them. So, we it, we viewed it as a constraint. By having this constraint, it forced us to make the the brand the, the full experience beginning to end for our customers so good that um, they would spread the word. So, additionally, it gives you a lot of options um, as to how, what you want to build. You want to build a lifestyle business. You want to sell it. You want to do a merger. You want to go public. You know, depending how the company grows, you you have a lot of flexibility as to how to do it. You can operate your business, build the culture the way you want to build it. You don't have anybody to convince. Um, I will say it's playing the, it's playing the, it's playing the game on, on hardcore mode. So the risks, the risk is much greater. Um, the reward could very well be much, much greater as well. It's high risk, high reward. Um, in it, and I'll also say, I, we learned a lot about building a real profitable business, building uh, proper budgets and, um, understanding the having to understand the P and L from from day zero before we had a CFO, um, I, I just um, I, I say it was a, it, it's a huge learning experience for Dehi and I, and it really set us up for whatever else you know we we may want to do in the future. But it's really um, it, it's really up to up to based on where you want to go. But we we ended up moving out of Silicon Valley because we knew we had to get out of that bubble of thinking um, if we were going to you know be confident enough to continue forward. That's awesome. Uh, one of the the things I like about that model, uh, what, uh, as you pointed out, it is it is potentially hardcore mode. But um, 
I, I have a premise that there's a lot of businesses out there that can be really vibrant, $100 million a year businesses to $900 million a year businesses that can, you know, support people, help customers, uh, gainfully employ a bunch of people. Um, and that can be a really successful business if you're able to grow to be that kind of business organically. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's not a win for a, a venture-backed company. And so you're sort of forced to get to that, that next stage. Um, whether, whether there's organic demand or not. And uh, like, it, it feels like we're starting to see some of these, these companies have to uh, occasionally do foolish things to try to get the, those VC multiples when the business maybe didn't support it. Yeah. And, and even, even just press, I mean, press is a good way to getting exposure. The press we found that they don't, for the most part, don't like to write about startups that, that haven't raised capital because it's all about the valuation. It's all about the amount of money you've raised. And we always struggled to get, to get noticed we're the architects of the disruption in the mattress industry, and um, and it's always been hard to cut through the noise um, um, to really get that story out. So, but yeah, I mean, it's um, it was definitely uh, it's definitely an extreme position. Um, you know, the other extreme raising a lot of capital, but um, in the end, you know, um, and it really depends on you know what kind of product and what kind of market you're in if it's possible. Um, there was a few factors that made it possible for us to bootstrap it. Um, in their in the early days, but in the end, I mean, um, my co-founder and I, we we owned you know eighty percent of the business um, right up to the merger, and and we had given away twenty percent to the employees, and it's been um, it's been a lot of fun. We still have a long way to go through the merger, um, and and to 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 fully realize what it was that we originally uh, sought to solve. But um, yeah, it's been a wild ride, but um, and we've learned a lot. That's terrific. Uh, and you mentioned disruptor. I feel like there's the sort of traditional notion here is, you know, you have these um, disruptors that come into an incumbent industry and they either uh, disrupt the incumbent um, and become the new incumbent, or, you know, very often we see the incumbent acquire the disruptor. Uh, another thing that's interesting to me about you is, um, is, as you alluded to earlier, it, it wasn't really an acquisition. Uh, it, it was a, a merger of a disruptor and a in an incumbent in the mattress space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I might even characterize it as sort of a, a reverse acquisition in that it feels like you, you guys are now the leadership team for, for CERTA. And you, you mentioned you're, you're the chief strategy officer, not for Tuft and Needle, but for, for all of CERTA Simmons betting. That's right. So um, yeah, so the merger, it was operationally, legally and financially a merger. Um, and, uh, we would not have done this unless that was the case. And that was not only, you know, a, a strong stance that he and I had, um, but to be honest, that was also the way, um, SSB uh, sort of Simmons also wanted it. Um, because if you, if you think about it, you know, these, these companies that heavily rely on retail, um, as their primary distribution, um, when the when retail when this this whole landscape is an ecosystem is completely changing the customer journey is completely changing what's happening is direct to consumer is is the starting point of the customer's journey and so if you if you um, you see that and and they did see that that is what leads the business and you know and on along the customer's journey then some of them go to retail that's the shift that's happening so we are taking leadership um, and our also, currently, I'm currently responsible for um, building out their direct-to-consumer business and getting it set up properly. Very cool. Is it? Um, are you guys doing that on the platform you guys built, or is it kind of a reimagining of, of what it'll look like? 
Yes, it's 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 almost completely on our platform. Um, you know, the the in, in the first couple of years, um, I had built out all the software from the the e-commerce side, the, the the front end, all the way in the back end, and order management, customer service tools, um, to the to the factory floors where we have scanners and all the logistics. Um, the nice thing about having our own stack is that we have all the data and we can automate everything. So versus using like an SAP or, you know, some kind of um, other, or, you know, like a Shopify or something like that. Um, your very, your business rules and your business process do not have to conform to the software that you're using. You can literally build it the way you want. So um, it is a competitive advantage. Um, and for us, I mean, it's, it's fairly simple to, um, to replicate for for the other brands, so they'll they'll all operate with the same efficiency as Top Menu. Neat, spoken like a true comp saga. Uh, the uh, so so that's good background. Let's talk about the state of the mattress industry. So you guys kind of uh, you know I think you were earliest. I, I don't have a good yardstick on this, and then now you can't throw a rock without hitting ten mattress companies. Um, how how did that kind of develop from your point of view? Yeah, it started. We were the first, so we started. Um, there were some company uh, companies selling mattresses online that had had converted their mo- that had started before. I mean, mattresses were sold online back in the late nineties, but that had converted to the model. So we were the ones that had architected the model. Um, but really, um, we when we started in two thousand twelve, um, we got noticed in two thousand thirteen by the venture capital community, um, and you know there were there was a point where you know they. I'd heard the phrase, we've decided to play in this space. Um, um, actually, two of the venture capitalists that um, said that if, uh, had, had actually told us that if we didn't take their money, they would find somebody who would, and they did. <laughs> um, so about two and a half years later, um, we had our first um, lookalike company start, um, who's the most heavily funded um, competitor. Um, and then about six months after them, two more. And then about a year after them, probably 75. And now there's 200 plus. Wow. And, um, you know, as a first time um, founder, um, I will say that it was, um, it was definitely a, uh, emotional, emotionally, um, it was an emotional trial for, 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 for me to get over the fact that somebody was building a company exactly like yours. Um, and there's not really much you can do, do about it. Um, and uh, but then, as I saw that this was actually a really great thing, because um, all this venture capital flooding into the market is is being spent on marketing, raising the awareness of of um, consumers. So they knew they now know there's a new way to buy a mattress, and as long as you do a good job of getting your name name out there, um, you know this uh, this is a, a high ticket item that people do a lot of research on, and as long as you have a, a solid if not better value proposition than your competitors, um, their dollars become your dollars. So it's been very good for accelerating our growth and, um, and helping us stay, stay at the top of the wave as it's, as it's being, um, as it's growing. Cool. And then um, what made you pull the trigger on uh, combining with Serta? So it, it initially started with, so I, uh, I want to say it was, yeah, it was 2000, 2015, the beginning that we, began to develop um, a retail strategy and um, and in our approach and we're we're also the first ones doing this and building a store was not to take the approach of a pop-up we 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 i guess we're sort of um righteous in the uh, taking a righteous standpoint or idealistic standpoint that the retail model is not dead 
it's going to take a new form and that we just have to figure it out. The unit economics must work out somehow. And so we opened up a store in San Francisco um, and followed by a couple more. And it took us, it took us a few years to figure out how do you build a store, a retail store in today's day and age that's um, that will last into the future um, and, and, and do it profitably. And when we figured that out, um, that was really in 2017. We, um, well, one of the things we learned was it's something around a six month payback before, you know, you, you make your money back for, from opening the store. So we really wanted to rapidly expand it. We would, um, being cash poor because we're funneling all our profits into growth, um, and being bootstrapped, we really wanted to go faster. We would have to raise capital. So we decided, okay, we'll take some capital on. So we originally wanted to, to raise 25 million, which isn't much. And that was actually, it was very easy to get to a, to a term sheets, but it was very difficult to get to a term sheet for that small amount. Um, so we, as we were going through um, our options, we, we, and we had a lot, um, the word got out that we were raising and then it got out to um, big uh, giant retailers. It got out to uh, strategics like factories and, and competitors and then we started to get um, calls inbounds um, from others. And when Serta Simmons reached out, it was actually driven by the, the private equity firm that, that owns Serta Simmons majority. They had, they had um, seen this and they saw the opportunity and they, we decided, okay, we'll, we'll meet with them and just see what they have to say. This is one of the, the big boys that we're going up against um, and fighting against and taking down. But um, when we met with them, we saw that, their point of view is completely different. Their executive team, nobody from the mattress industry um, is on their executive team, which is weird. Their vision of the future was very similar to ours. And, um, and we just saw that there was actually almost full alignment. So, so we decided to, to pursue it. And if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, we just continue on. We'll, we'll raise that capital and we'll, we'll expand our retail footprint uh, much faster. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's really the genesis of how we um, arrived at this uh, concept of a merger. Um, and to be perfectly honest, um, digitally native brands um, have a predicament. When, you, when you've captured the majority of the online market, you have to do something. If, you wanna, if your goal is to really be the number one, two, or three, you have to keep growing and you have to expand and distribute. And so one of the, the key um, benefits of doing this merger was that sort of Simmons has the largest distribution network of mattresses. So essentially unlocks all of those channels for us to expand. So that was a way to greatly accelerate the growth of Tough the Needle. That makes total sense. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. It's interesting to see how much the evolution in this space has changed consumer behavior in some ways and expectations. And then in other ways, um, you know, uh, maybe it hasn't. Uh, we're recording this the week after Memorial Day. Is that still the mattress Super Bowl? Uh, it's one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's it's definitely one of them. And it's um, unfortunate that mattresses are sold this way from my point of view. Um, it's a very promotional market and it's trained um, customers to shop that way, unfortunately. Um, I think if, if it wasn't so promotional, if people didn't shop that way, we'd actually be able, all these companies actually be able to provide products at a lower price. Um, but yeah, it's um, customers point, customers' expectations, at least the ones that now know um, there's a new way to shop. 
now expect at least the so the way I the way I frame this usually is our biggest competitor is really Apple and Amazon because what they're doing is um, they're setting the bar. So customers expect to get the kind of service, the kind of product, the kind of experience from the great companies that um, that are leading the way in other markets. And so when they go to buy a mattress, they're expecting something like that. And then on top of it, the people that are now learning about Tough the Needle and, and some of the others um, are now seeing that there's also a better way to buy a mattress. So, you, so people want their mattress right now. They want it easy. They want a good price. They want best-in-class customer service. They want free returns, easy returns. They, they come to expect all of this. So, that, so any of these companies, especially the incumbents that do not adapt are, are just going to, they're just going to die. For, for sure. Um, you mentioned a, a word that got Scott uh, whipped up into a tizzy, uh, the A word. So uh, we'll, we'll want to get to that in uh, uh, pretty quickly here, but I did have one, one other question. Like, uh, as so many digital competitors have emerged in the space, one of the negative ramifications is all the digital marketing tactics are super competitive. And so that drives up cost of customer acquisition and all those things. And I, and I want to say like back in 2017, there was this uh, fast company article talking about like a lot of oily marketing practices in the mattress space that I, I, you know, I think one of your competitors uh, was actually suing a review site and they were accusing them of being fake. And then they, they bought that review site and, and uh, dropped the lawsuit if I have the story right. Yeah, that's, that's about right. Um, I, so I'm not going to name any names, but the mattress industry has been dirty since its founding. I mean, this is like, it's prolific. So um, the reason why, you know, those law tags that are on a mattress exist was that mattress salesmen would sell you a mattress that would, that would advertise that it was used horsehair, which is a very premium, very high quality material, but instead it would be filled with straw. And so the government stepped in with a law that you have to disclose what's inside the mattress so that they can track back if the customer were to open it and discover, or there was an audit that you were, you were lying and then you, you know, you, you would, you would be punished, um, which is a good thing. Uh, because customers buy a mattress so infrequent and they're so uneducated with really what to look for. Unlike a computer, like we know processing power and memory and screen resolution, we know these things now, or it's pretty easy to to brush up since the last time you bought one. But a mattress, it's very difficult to 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 know what to look for. So it's easy to fleece a customer. And so just the nature of the market is is set up for set up for that. And it, and it also stems from marketing. Um, digitally, so saying you're something but you're not, um, or saying, "Oh yeah, we have that too," but you really don't. And you you know you you can get away with it because you're just a customer in a mattress store, and you know where's your evidence? So, um, but anyway, yeah, one of the one of the tactics that's used is um, these these review sites, which I I re- I refer to as the digital manifestation of the mattress salesman. So, in, and they're not all like this, but in general. Um, what how it works is these these bloggers will write a write a review, and um, and then hook into a um, affiliate program where they get a kickback if the traffic flowed through their website, and um, and we have seen this that where the the more you give them in a kickback, um, the the better your ratings will be, or if you choose not to participate, the lower your ratings will be, um, and we do have some um, some evidence of this this happening to us. Um, it's very frustrating because you it's it's 
how are customers to know what they're reading and are they going to see those little disclaimers that these are these are paid um it's essentially advertisers um but yeah there's several competitors that we have that have either built um these these independent unbiased i'm doing air quotes unbiased mattress review sites um have built them and launched them and tried to disassociate themselves and just review their products better um and some of them have acquired a few and I mean, we just found another blog, another affiliate that we've been working working with uh, was actually owned by a competitor. So, and what do you suppose? What do you do if the, if a lot of customers are are flowing through there? If you're if you're rated poorly, you you it starts to influence um, your people's perception of you. It's it's almost like if you don't if you don't work with the mafia that you're you're going to lose. Um, we had refused to work with affiliates for a long time until we finally decided that if we didn't, our company is not going to survive. It's um, sort of like doing a deal with the devil. It's very frustrating. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dirty market and that's just one of the games that's played. Another one is persistent promotions. There's another competitor I don't want to name that runs a promotion 24-7. And that's not a promotion. There are literally rules to marketing. If you run a promotion for, um, uh, if you don't stop your promotion for a period of time before your, your next one, then that's, then it should, that's supposed to be your actual price. Um, but again, customers are fooled because they come in, they buy the mattress and they leave and you don't see them for, for eight to 10 years. So, um, those are just two of the tactics that are used. And for a company like tough the needle, where we're, we're hiring people that are, that are wanting to do right, um, by the customer, build a company that's focused on the customer, change the industry that way. When they see this and these tactics working against us, but we've, you know, we can't play that game or it'll, it'll, it'll taint, um, you know, our ethos. And I mean, I, I'm certain that we would lose customers. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. It's, uh, it's definitely challenging. So that is one of the key challenges that Tough Needle has as it, as it, um, as it continues to, you know, to hopefully continue to grow. And that's particularly ironic when the, the, uh, senior leadership of a mattress company can't sleep at night, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So we, uh, you, you kind of introduced Amazon. Uh, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't kind of do a little bit of a dive into Amazon. Um, maybe it's interesting from a historical standpoint. Uh, I believe you guys sell on Amazon. It's hard to tell if it's first party or third party or, or a blend. Um, and then you know, now, so it'd be interesting to hear your historical aspect of how'd you make that decision and then uh, it looks like everyone's selling there. And now, of course, Amazon has an Amazon basic uh, mattress in a box kind of a thing. Yes. So, How do you feel about all that? Well, um, we sell first party um, to, to Amazon. Um, so in, the, in our second year, we, um, we were struggling to, to establish. So when you're building a brand from scratch, one of the things you have to do is build credibility until just everybody knows your name. And one of the ways that um, you do that, especially as a company that's un- unheard of, is you you collect testimonials, you collect reviews. So Dave and I were talking about this. Well, if we're going to do reviews, we can't post them to our site or like have them write them on our site because what customers, we, we wouldn't trust that if we were buying it from somewhere else. So we're just like, well, if somebody's going to read a review, where would we read reviews when we're buying, when we're shopping? And Amazon's one of the places that both of us read reviews before we buy, whether it's through Amazon or direct. And so we had this idea that we would list our product on Amazon. We didn't even know if they would sell mattresses and just so that we had a place to send our customers to write reviews. And um, so we did. 
And it took a couple months to get to get the buy button activated so that we can have reviews placed there. Um, and then we started sending our, all our customers over to write reviews. And within about three to, it was a three to four months, we were the highest rated, they were selling mattresses. We were the highest rated mattress in their store. And we were also the highest rated product in the entire furniture category. And we held that spot for almost two years. So we were an early mover and, um, and we still have the majority of the market um, of mattress sales above the $500 mark um, on Amazon. Um, we've also developed a product with Amazon. Um, it's called the Nod. And so they did release their private label, but, um, you know, one of the things they found is that brand names matter and they wanted to do a collaboration. So we did develop a unique product that's only available exclusively on Amazon with them to serve their customers at that lower price point above or below $500. So, um, the way that we view it is, um, for us to only purely sell D to C, the market is only so big. So the online is only so big. It's something like 20% of mattresses are bought online. So once, once your growth curve begins to slow, your, your next question is, well, where do, else could we grow? And there's other markets. And one of the big markets is Amazon. So, um, so if, our, if there are customers there that want to buy a tough the needle, why not be there? as long as it makes sense for our business. So one of the things that we've, we've always done is we've separated. So, so those reviews ended up turning into a lot of sales and it ended up being something like 20% for the, for those few years of our, of our sales, we would always measure our PL separate, um, our operating expenses so that if for any reason something happened to Amazon, it wouldn't implode our business. Um, and that also gave us enough um, leverage to um, negotiate um, healthy, healthy, um, terms um, with how how it's being sold there and what you know what the fees are and all of that and to be perfectly honest i mean it's always difficult working with a big partner but for the most part it's been it's been a good relationship um, and we've done very well um, and you know of course the monies that we make there we we just further in, invest in the brand so it's it's been um there's definitely some cons but there's also been a lot of pros for our business Cool. Um, and, you know, so not only did you kind of partner with Amazon, you partnered deeply. The So so a lot of people, a lot of skeptics say, okay, you gave Amazon all this data and, and essentially led them right into the, the mattress industry. How, how would you respond to that? Um, I would say that's probably true. Um, we did. Um, we did share a lot of learnings with them, but they shared a lot of learnings with us. Um, but if you think about it, it was either, either be us or somebody else. Um, it was bound to happen. Um, but if you like, here's an example. So we had a hundred night trial and we found that hundred night trial worked really well and they had a 30 night trial and that was really upsetting a lot of our customers. So we proved to them with data that this was something that they needed to do. So they, they didn't, they don't do this. They didn't, from my understanding, they didn't do this in other, other, um, categories. So we convinced them to increase their, their, their trial, um, or their return process to, to match ours. That's an example. There's many others, but, um, but there are people who shop there and they should get a good experience. I like we tough the needle has customers that buy on Amazon. We want them to be taken good care of. So even though it's technically not our direct customer, um, we do want them to be taken care of and want Amazon to do a good job with them. So, um, we viewed it as a as a good thing to to collaborate with Amazon, um, but you know, their Amazon wants you know their customers buy in just about all categories, and they want to do a good job. And they want to be competitive, so um, they'll they'll figure it out. You know, just like our our other competitors will figure it out. So, um, 
So that's, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, but that's, that's sort of how I feel about it. Interesting. And uh, one clarification, because I think you have one of the, the most mature Amazon models out there. So you, so you have sort of your core product, your original project product, which you sell one P through Amazon and you sell direct. Um, and obviously one traditional uh, challenge uh, folks have selling one P through Amazon as Amazon set the price sets their price so they can potentially um, sell your product uh, at a lower price point than you're trying to sell your product. Mm-hmm. You have this exclusive uh, product on Amazon, the nod at a value price point. Um, but then if I have this right, you also have a premium product, the mint that's only available direct that you don't make available through Amazon. Is that? That's true. Yeah. So um and, and and I think that's like so you know there the way that we view it is um all the products we, the products that we sell elsewhere we want those to be available direct with the exception you know we violated that that idea with the nod um we don't intend to do that with anybody else but um but you know when you're building your when you have your own stores and you have your own website there's got to be some value special value that you would get coming direct. And so we want to make sure that you have the full product menu available direct. Um, so, so, so some distributors may have some products, but they'll not have them all. Um, you know, we don't want to put everything in, at every point of distribution. It doesn't even make sense. Like we're, we're in Walmart. We're not going to, the mint matches would not sell in Walmart. It just wouldn't, the demographic, it wouldn't, it wouldn't match, you know, just like the, the, the tough needle original wouldn't sell in crate and barrel. So we sell the mint there. Like we, we just pick and choose like where we believe the product would be best suited and be perfectly honest. Some of these higher price points, we don't necessarily believe are the best spots for Amazon if, until, until we're proven wrong. So, I mean, the majority of the mattresses being sold are actually below the $500 price point sold by these, these Chinese um, companies and factories that are import exporting, importing, um, and just undercutting. Um, so, you know, we, we don't really see it necessarily as, as, a, as a huge business if we were to sell there. But at the same time, we also have to balance what the special value is. Like as an example, if you were to go into a Best Buy and see the, you know, the, the store in store for shop and shop for Apple, Apple doesn't have all its products there. Just like at Walmart, you might see an iPod. When you go in the Apple store, there's all their products. You can play with all of them. There's all their merchandising. You get all the, the customer support and experts that know everything about the products. There's a reason why you would still go into a Walmart to check out a product, but you'd still want to go into an Apple store. And it's the same thing with our own stores and, and our digital store um, is that you have to think about the, the, the balance of value that you're providing your customer, especially if you want, if you want at least some percentage of them to want to buy from you direct. Yeah. Um, so, so speaking of that, like one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, so you were primarily a, a, a direct model. Uh, you do this merger with uh, Serta. Um, and I think Serta had some direct sales, but I, um, my sense is they're overwhelmingly a wholesale model. Yes. Yep. Um, and so now you have some sort of experience and legacy on both sides of the fence. Uh, we're seeing more and more of the, the, the digital native brands that originally only sold direct through their own website, you know, starting to do partnerships with traditional retailers. Um, but what's been interesting is my sense is a bunch of those, because you already built this desirable brand that has this special um, affinity with customers before you go to the Crate and Barrels and the Walmarts. Um, my, my sense is you're often able to cut a better economic deal than a, the traditional wholesale deal. 
Um, yeah, it depends how you measure it. So if you if you look at what the operating costs are for us to be in Lowe's, and we're rapidly expanding Lowe's, um, we're the first mattress to 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 go into a DIY store. Um, I mean, the business is is growing very very big and very fast, but the operating costs it's it's primarily the the shipping by truckload, which isn't much different than than shipping FedEx to a customer. So okay, so that's that's um you know that that's net neutral. So, but it, but how many people does it take to run that two people? If you look at my, if you look at, um, tough and we have, we have 150 employees. So, but, but the thing is, it's, it's not that, it's not that easy. You can't, that's the old way of thinking about retail. All of these, all of these team members that are building this, you know, the digital brand and, and all the advertising and all of that and the products, they're building the value that the customers stop at. It's like the, it's like on the customer's journey, there's a stopping point before they go into retail and that's your site. And then that gets them excited to want to go to Lowe's to buy. So it's almost like you have to blend your expenses or sorry, your costs um, and overhead across your digital, but also, um, also your, um, your, your distributors. So, so to answer your question, yes, it may, it may be uh, more profitable, um, you know, direct, but, um, you know, but, but honestly, like it, it's still, there's still a lot of costs that are involved with Lowe's. I mean, we're, everything that we do is driving, um, you know, dr- driving um, or those costs should be attributed to, to Lowe's and, and Crate and Barrel and Walmart and all of those. Um, but, but the thing is like customers, customer, if you want to build your, the, the online market, you know, it just depends on which market, like if it's electronics, electronics, something like 30 or 40%. But, you know, it, it grew to that point for mattresses is like 20%. So if, if you want to keep growing, you're going to have to expand and you're going to have to, to go into retail and the customers start online and then they, they discover you, whether it's through advertising or, or Googling around to finding you. And then you build the excitement and they'll either buy, the, they'll buy right there or they'll want to go and see it. For our specific market um, and mattresses, there is a large um, segment of of customers that want to try the product, and that's just unique. That's probably fairly unique to the mattress industry. So if you're if you're not in a retail store, you're just not going to get that sale. So we'll just lose those customers. So it's almost a requirement um, if we want to continue to grow to serve serve more people. Yeah, and it feels like even categories that maybe don't have quite as strong a uh, a try um, component are still landing at this model where you really need to be omni-channel to survive. And that, you you know, that like, it, it seems like all the brands that started out exclusively selling direct through a website are finding from either customer acquisition standpoint or a customer satisfaction standpoint, they need a brick and mortar footprint to, um, to complement that, that direct sales model. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just logical. So, it just depends where, like, the, where are your customers go, where are the people going, where are they buying from. So I could say that, yeah, retail is shrinking. Just period, it is shrinking. Digital is eating eating the retail world. So the question is, are we just going to stay digital until it fully transitions over? How long will that take? Even if we know that that let's say in ten or twenty years, the twenty percent might grow to sixty percent or something like that, it may make sense to open retail stores and expand with the intention to contract the retail stores as it transitions. It just depends on how fast you want to grow and, 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 you know, what, what kind of a business you want to build. But it, it really just goes back to the customer If customers want to go and see your product or they, 
some people want to go to Costco or, or Sam's Club and they want to buy there. That's just where they will buy. There are people that will only buy from Amazon. They will not buy direct. So do you choose not to serve them? Um, you know, that's just a business, a business decision. So and our point of view is that we want to, um, we want to change the industry. So if we're, we're going to do that, we need to serve a lot of customers and we need to go to where our customers are. So omni-channel is the way. The thing about omni-channel is it makes everything complicated because the way that you attribute your marketing dollars and like, you know, and, um, and being able to measure what, you know, is this accretive or is this cannibalizing? I mean, that's all very complicated. So it's, it's a challenging problem, but if you're um, determined and, and you've got a smart team and you build a solid, solid model that um, can inform those decisions, um, it can work. Um, we've proven at least in the mattress industry, it can work. Yeah, no. And that, that's a great point about, uh, timing being so important in these disruptions as well. I, I actually started my career a million years ago in the like eight, late 80s, early 90s at Blockbuster Entertainment. And every year there'd be some super smart investor that would pontificate that, that you know, uh, physical media is going to get replaced by digital and they would short Blockbuster. And well, th- they were all certainly right in the long-term horizon. They all took a bath short shorting yeah. <laughs> back then totally. um, yep. and that that's probably a great place to to leave it because it's happened again we have used up uh our an hour of our listeners time um if you do have any burning questions we didn't get to or want to continue the conversation we encourage you to uh visit our facebook page or hit us up on twitter Thanks, JT. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. If uh, folks want to follow you online, are you a, a Twitterer or a LinkedIn publisher or anything like that? I'm not much of a social media person, but uh, my, my email is jt at tn.com and our, our website is, uh, is tn.com. Yeah, feel free, to, feel free to email me. That, by the way, is an awesome uh, URL. And uh, <laughs> with that, we'll wish everyone happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 